You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to City Lights Live. I am your host, Peter Maravellis, and tonight we are delighted to have with us Benjamin Weber in conversation with Christopher Paul Harris. We are celebrating the launch and publication of Benjamin Weber's new book, American Purgatory, Prison Imperialism and the Rise of Mass Incarceration. It is published by the New Press. Christopher Paul Harris also has a new book that was recently published, To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain and Care, published by our friends at Princeton University Press. There are strong threads that connect the work of both of these scholars in their respective areas of study. City Lights has had the great pleasure of championing their works, and we feel they're addressing very clearly and powerfully the issues related to the struggle for justice in this country, as well as the world. As Benjamin Weber points out in his book, the American prison system is inextricably linked to the expansion of American power around the globe. The insight, thoughtfulness, and visionary outlook of both our guests contribute greatly to the national discussion regarding Black politics, protest, and political thought at this crucial moment in history. Hence, we are very, very excited about this evening's program. Before we begin, as is customary, I would like to remind everyone that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatish Ohlone people. I would like to take this moment to offer our respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Benjamin Weber is an assistant professor of African-American and African studies at the University of California at Davis. He has worked at the Vera Institute of Justice, Alternate Roots, the Marcus Garvey and UNIA Papers Project, and has a public high school teacher as taught in East Los Angeles. He makes his home in Davis, California. Christopher Paul Harris is an assistant professor in the Department of Global and International Studies at the University of California at Irvine. His research interests range from Black political thought, cultural aesthetics, and social movements to broader questions concerning the possibility of revolutionary transformation in the 21st century. To Build a Black Future is his first book and draws upon his experiences as an activist and organizer inside the movement for Black lives. It's such a great pleasure to be able to offer a warm welcome to Benjamin Weather and Christopher Paul Harris. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for organizing this. Brett, I, let me start by saying congratulations, Ben. <laughs> what a wonderful achievement your book is, and it's been a pleasure to read, and um, I'm excited for this conversation. Congrats to you, too. I am uh, just finished it, and we were chatting a little bit before this started, but wow, Chris. I mean, this is the book that my students need that the activists need, um, that we all need. And so it is such an honor to be in conversation with you, Ben, to get to do this with all of you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I I feel the same way about yours. So we decided that to get started, um, we will read a paragraph that each of us were drawn to in the other's book, and then uh, we'll begin the conversation. So I am going to read uh, from the first chapter, of American Purgatory, and that chapter is called Prisons and Placemaking, on page eight, if anyone wants to follow along, the bottom of page eight. 
So the battle of, excuse me, the battle of Negro Fort was a battle over placemaking. With a deadly preemptive strike in foreign territory, the federal government committed itself to an imperial policy path that would eventually spread forts, bases, and prisons throughout continental North America, across the Pacific, and all over the world. The invasion of Florida targeted the destruction of a powerful symbol of Black and Indigenous freedom. In its place, federal officials laid the groundwork for the Monroe Doctrine, the National Indian Removal Policy, and the infamous Dred Scott Supreme Court ruling, demonstrating that the allocation of rights, persecution of alleged criminals, and treatment of prisoners would all be racially differentiated. The story of the Black uh, Fort uncovers how understanding the root causes of the contemporary crisis of over-imprisonment is not only about what prisons purported to contain, but also about what they covered over. The unrealized possibilities that were caged in, killed off, and otherwise foreclosed. It's a powerful paragraph. Thanks, Chris. Um, and I hope this isn't confusing, but I am now reading a paragraph from his book that um, resonated with me. And then at the end of our conversation, we'll each read a little bit uh, from our own book. Um, and also, I know, I don't know if Peter mentioned, but we'll do a Q&A at the end from the chat. So be thinking of questions, put your questions in the chat. Peter will jump back in um, and read some of those, share some of those with us. Um, so we're excited for all of your wonderful questions as well. Um, and so for those of you that have this book, this is Chris's book, um, To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain, and Care. Um, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll read this, this paragraph, but one of the things that's so beautiful about this book is how he shows how those things, joy, pain, care, um, are made material by young people at the vanguard of this groundswell of movement building. Um, and so this paragraph that I chose is from chapter four, A Joyful Rebellion. Um, and it starts, Black Joy, the singing, dancing, and chants, the ad-libs and improvised movements, the culture. If Black pain is a spindle around which the capitalist world system weaves its thread, abolishing that system through the, ad through the adoption of a praxis invested in as Dylan Rodriguez suggests, a radical reconfiguration of justice, subjectivity, and social formation disentangled from the captive logics that ground the totality of state-sanctioned and extra-state relations of gendered racial colonial dominance is the highest form of regard. It's the mechanism by which we build a Black future. And then he goes on to write, to make such a claim is one thing, to actualize it is another, and on that front, Black joy plays an essential role. Um, and so, yeah, with with that um, kind of introduction to to these two books, um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about these books. Um, and so, I'll start. Um, and one thing, you know, I was was thinking about um, as I read the book is is the the tribute that you make to your late father um, and the way that you weave in kind of ancestral wisdom, the way that you channel that throughout the book um, and the way that you make the case that art, culture and politics are inseparable. Um, and so I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about your own experience touring the country as a musician 
um, and how that shaped your approach to your activism and your scholarship, um, and also a little bit about the intergenerational dimension of your work. Great. Yeah, thank you for that question. It's funny, when I first started doing these events, I imagined that everybody would just kind of skip over that part. Because very subtly... You called it life-changing. Oh, I, I guess I did. <laughs> so, so I've been I've been forced to kind of talk talk about it more and um I've was hesitant at first but but now I'm I'm more excited to. Uh I think there are two dimensions to this that are important to the work. One is kind of substance-wise and one is about form. Um, so towards the substance, touring was a grind. And we were doing everything, you know. DIY, renting a, a minivan and driving ourselves. And we had very little money. So the way that we were able to manage is by couch surfing. The, I don't think it exists anymore, but people of a certain age will remember that, you know, phenomena where you would, you know, reach out to people and ask to stay and they would let you. And so the point of that is not to talk about how poor we were and, and doing the DIY thing, but it's to say that being able to stay at people's houses brought us in greater contact and greater conversation with lots of people that we wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to 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 talk to before or after the show on in the same level and it was those conversations that inspired a desire to think generationally to ask questions about generational politics and that's where the 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 project that would eventually become the book started thinking generationally thinking about generational politics is also how I came into the Black Youth Project 100 because they are a Black-led organization, or Black-only organization, excuse me, um, comprised of and for 18 to 35-year-olds. So they're very clear, they were very clearly thinking about this generational dynamic. And it was once I started in BYP 100 that I noticed, not noticed, but uh came to the conclusion that what I really wanted to write about was Black movement and Black thought, which itself is inherently intergenerational. I'll come back to, to that point in a, in a moment. The second thing is about form. Right? Um, as a musician, as a songwriter, um, as a singer, um, I came to academia with a desire to write more affectively. Uh, to channel whatever it was I was doing or trying to do as a musician and write lyrics into the process of not just writing the book or learning how to write um, books, but also the form of it. I mean, asking the question, how can we make our writing, our books, sound and feel like listening to an album? And that's a major investment of mine. So without having been a musician, uh, and having an experience of touring the country, I might not have come to generational politics, which brought me to BYP 100. And I might not have been as invested as I am in, in writing as a craft rather than just to um, explain an argument. Um, the, the, very quickly on the intergenerational piece, <clears throat> if you understand, as I do, and as I'm sure you do, that Black political thought and Black movement is a conversation, right, um, to the world, a demand to the world, but also amongst other Black people. And one of the things that I was invested in and have has been invested in in trying to craft this book um, is to demonstrate that conversation. 
It's also something that's very vivid in movement spaces because we're, again, trying to learn from the past in order to pave a better future. And if you, you know, if you think about it, all Black movement has been an attempt to build a Black future. So let me ask you about how you came into to, to your work and your project. And I was struck, but I found it really interesting that in your preface, you mentioned that sifting through prison records in Manila was the starting point for you and this project. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why those prison records or how those prison records um, helped inspire you to spend what you describe as a decade studying the intersection between American prisons and American empire. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly a spark. Um, and, but I think it really started a decade earlier um even you know in terms of thinking generationally and, and intergenerationally um you know i came of political age um in the early 2000s with the invasion u.s invasion of iraq and afghanistan so i grew up in the san francisco bay area with you know, going to city lights involved in kind of racial justice and environmental justice movements but the student walkouts um i was in high school in 2001 2003 you know, a decade before I was in Manila doing research. And um, I think that's when, you know, coming of political age in an anti-war movement and realizing some of the stories that came out later, you know, about like people like uh, the police commander in Chicago, John Burge, who was a Gitmo interrogator who tortured people in Guantanamo and then tortured Black people in Chicago. Um, like those kind of, the way that the torture uh, kind of moved through those sites of empire. Like I knew that must have a history. Um, and so, you know, part of it is about when you come um, of political age. And so I've been really drawn to that, to that aspect of your, your work too, talking about black millennials, talking about the Trayvon generation, kind of what young people have, uh, how they've come of age um, during and through um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and then, you know, in college, my roommate was, uh, his dad was a Black Studies professor, um, mm. the late great Clyde Woods. And so it was actually Clyde Woods' work that sent me in search of, of root causes um, and had that kind of framework for um, both, you know, Black Studies framework for understanding the most challenging social and political problems of our time. Like I had studied history and politics, and but it was really Black Studies was the missing <laughs> framework. Um, for me, um, but yeah, so that that kind of decade leading up to that moment um, where I was going through prison records in Manila, you know, I was also teaching high school after college in East LA, and I could see and feel really acutely the way that certain neighborhoods were over-policed, the way that, um, you know, that really resonated with what people, not just in the Black Panther movement, but in the Young Lords and the Brown Berets had described their neighborhoods as internal colonies described overseas colonies as geographic prisons. Um, you could see that in a really um, lived way. You know, I visited a lot of students um, who had been um, kind of arrested for being after curfew, had been profiled, had been, you know, just all the things that um, exist in, in the police neighborhoods. Um, so I guess all that to say, a lot of things clicked for me in doing that PhD research and, and looking for the deeper history of how this you know crisis um you know of of our time of certainly um you know the 
the, as, as many of you know, the U.S. Uh, incarcerates people at, rural, at rates that are un, you know, unprecedented in world history, um, at rates of racial disparity. So the racially targeted mass incarceration um, is the racial justice, social justice kind of crisis of our time. And so I think I knew that going into graduate school and trying to find both the kind of long and the broad view um, of that problem, as well as kind of try to lift up some of the solutions. Um, and so, but, but in that moment, looking at those, those prison records, you know, um, I, I describe a little bit in the preface, but, you know, just being drawn to their tattoos, the way that they're misread by the colonial police and, and whatnot. These are revolutionary anti-colonial fighters that are treated as criminals. Um, and, and the other thing that was a huge aha moment, um, there was the way that the U.S. colonial state described the search for messianic leaders. They're looking for a messiah. <laughs> Some of you, you know, are probably familiar with Judas and the Black Messiah. The way that um, the FBI's illegal COINTEL pro program called Fred Hampton and other leaders in the Black Panther Party. You know, they were like, "We must eradicate any potential Black Messiah capable of uniting and leading a revolutionary movement." That same language was was happening at the turn of the 20th century in the Philippines and, and again was happening um, with uh, the attempts at putting down um, rebellions and revolts by enslaved people on a you know, century before that. And so, yeah, part of that, that was really a spark. Um, and then, you know, the, the more glib answer is that uh, it shows up in the preface because editors and people that know a lot about books are like, put us in like a really in a place that people really associate with empire like a far off place you know um and so you you pick you make a series of choices when writing books um and and i think you know all of that for good reason right you are trying to tell a story you're picking um thing, representative cases and then you're weaving back in um the the less familiar um and so the uh yeah that's there's kind of um kind of a, a glib and a not so glib answer to that. No, thank you for um, that. Thank you for that. Uh, and um, uh, the the Lake Clyde Woods, uh, that, that was a, a turn I wasn't expecting you to take in your response. So isn't that here? Yeah, it's it's really sweet. So his, we were here in New Orleans and um, uh, Io Scott is the artist who painted the cover painting and the portraits in this book. And, and his dad, John Scott, uh, was a, MacArthur Genius Grant Awards winning New Orleans artist, longtime professor at Xavier, but he did the cover, um, The Coming Storm of Clyde's, Clyde Woods' book. Um, and uh, so it was really sweet. Like uh, my best friend's dad and then Io's dad, we were here talking about that in the John T. Scott Center um, and in Io's studio. And the other, the cover of his other book, um, um, Development Arrested, is a John Biggers painting that's up um, in. Um, Duke chases and so we were there for lunch and I gave us the whole New Orleans art thing and that was something you know that meant a lot to Clyde Woods and that you know both in development arrested and development drowned and reborn but you know is so present in your work like I, I was scribbling you know blues epistemology in the margins and you know the way that you talk about art and culture being so central to politics um, and the way that you still retain a kind of uh, revolutionary and, and liberationary framework. Um, as something that you know Clyde really pioneered so um yeah, yeah sure. we're so the intergenerational is coming through in another, another way um but yeah tell us a little bit about 
your method and your citational practice like i think this um kind of follows from this too but your citational practice is so rich and powerful um and basically weaving together observation interviews this huge array of primary and secondary sources and i feel like you just always have the perfect quote or like you're like carefully curating and channeling the entire black radical tradition like everything that i certainly read um in black studies and and it's just so accessible and so you um and so just just maybe tell us a little bit about your method because you're doing um incredible things and you're making it look very easy well well thank you for that i, I wish i could say that it's born out of a particular method um, or at least one that i understood in in advance or that i knowingly pursued uh, perhaps it's more accurate to say that it's about a certain kind of commitment uh, perhaps right and um a kind of desire to arrange and bring bring things together in the service of speaking about black movement and black thought as vividly as i can going into this uh you know there've been more and more books written about the movement so this is less true than 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 when i started but there wasn't really a rendering of the movement from the position of black thought from the position of black critical theory and so from the get go there was that kind of commitment that that i was going to try to tell this story of what i was observing using the uh, using the ideas and the language of of black studies because i believed that only black studies and black critical theory could speak to movement that conversation that that we were having and it just happened to be serendipitous the way certain things came together um again based on observations that i was and experiences that i was having in movement and then noticing parallels between those observations and social media po- posts and platforms and no- noticing those same parallels in in black critical theory that was coming out around the same time and so wanting to as i was saying wanting to 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 uh do justice to movement and to make a book that was not just about movement but was an example of movement in some kind of way led me to put together the different strands of those observation i was just describing together and make sure that i do that in conversation with black studies and black political thought over time uh, as a way of magnifying the idea of what black political development which is something i describe in the book is which is that conversation that we've been having our, with ourselves for for centuries uh one of one of the things that that was is also important to that and very deeply important to 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 my work in general has been black feminist thought and black feminist thinking and black black writers um so i won't would uh, black writers who write through and with that tradition and so i would be remiss if i didn't specifically say that a large part of the methodology behind the book if you could call it that is deeply embedded in a black feminist praxis that's dedicated to understanding and moving towards and for the collective right so that's the other part of it, the the kind of uh, 
citational practice that I arrived at um, in 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 the book. But I appreciate your kind words of, of, about what that looks like, even if it kind of happened rather than planned, right? Um, Conjuring. Let's say that again. I'm sorry. A conjuring of sorts, a curating. Yeah, conjuring, <laughs> coming together, right? You know, kind of like a, a painter would, right? You, you have the colors that you want to use, but you're not exactly sure where they're going to go until you put them there. Um, to, to bring it back to the to the cultural um, analogy, one of the things that is is so powerful about your work, I think, is that on the one hand, it's called American Purgatory, right? And it could have simply rested as a critique right, of, of what you term prison imperialism, which I hope you'll say more about. But it's just as much, if not more so, a book about resistance, right? Uh, and Black radicalism plays a significant role in, in uh, the kind of interwoven protest traditions um, that you narrate. So why, for you, uh, was it so critical uh, to, you know, center protest traditions and and amplify the voices of those who have struggled against prisons and empire, uh, both at home and abroad, including, and this is another cool feature of the book, you you like actually show pictures. You have some pictures of some of the people that you narrate, which I thought was a really nice touch. Yeah. Um those those portraits are incredible in full color too. Like they're in black and white, but Iowa Scott um, did those those portraits, and, and they are just um, just so striking in full color. And so, if you haven't um, had a chance to see them in full color, they're um, on my website and a few other places. But um, but yeah, um, so I mean, part of it is what you're what you're saying. There's you know a core commitment in Black studies um, to listen to and respond to wisdom from the ground up, from social movements. So part of it comes um, from a set of commitments and then, you know, the way that I was trained in graduate school and the mentors that I was fortunate enough to have along the way. Um, and then, you know, in particular, the the stories of the, the people that are chosen um, as representative in, in these chapters um, are um, people who internationalize the struggle um, because it's a it's a the kind of idea of protesting prison imperialism and the idea of learning um, from this um, movement building and this like centuries um, old conversation as you're talking um, about um, is to pick people that that represent certain um, um, like trajectories um, of that and so and they're all part um, of an imprisoned radical tradition. So they're all imprisoned intellectuals and activists. Um, some are Puerto Rican nationalists. Some um, are, are black uh, uh, liberation folks, like you were, you were mentioning. Um, and and two of those, you know, in, in the they kind of represent that stream of of black feminism that you're talking about. Um, you know, one of them uh, is Claudia Jones, who you know in in her her biographer uh, Carol Boyce Davies calls her beyond containment. You know, she's this force in the in the nineteen fifties um, in black communism and black left feminism and all the things. Therese Bruden Stelly calls her the foremother of revolution, and she's in a lot of Angela Davis's early work. Um, and yet, she, and and Miriam Kaba, you know, no selves to defend. All this stuff on 
move mass movements for defending political prisoners on, you know, she basically is there in all of these key moments in the history of, of black, of the black protest tradition. And, and yet she hasn't become, you know, as well known as, as some of the other figures. And we don't know why that is, but why they always teach, you know, Malcolm X versus MLK or something. Um, but you know, the, the, Claudia Jones like literally was on the vanguard of all of this stuff that that is in the book. So, you know, the the self-determination, the black belt, this nation within a nation thesis um, that becomes core to the theory of internal colonialism, becomes core to black nationalism. She's writing about that, you know, she's charging the U.S. with genocide, um, you know, the Civil Rights Congress or uh, their We Charge Genocide, the William Patterson and Paul Robeson and, and all that petition, you know, the um, call to Negro women in 1951 that she's organizing with the Sojourner for Truth and Justice, um, you know, they're charging the U.S. with genocide specifically for the targeted um, killing and imprisonment of Black people in 1951. Um, and then she's also naming triple oppression. So this intersection of kind of race, class, and gender oppression um, in in that becomes a core to, um, you know, the Third World Women's Alliance, to Black feminism, to Kabahi, to Fran Beal's Triple Jeopardy, this idea that, that and this is, you know, is in every, all of, so central to all of your work um, that, uh, you know, that you're able to see something differently when you experience those um, forms of intersecting um, oppression. Um, and so I guess, you know, relatedly, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit, uh, about you, you talk in your work, um, about these insights from Black feminism, um, both the urgent necessity to center the most marginalized, and this is described in different ways, um, in your book, but also in movement work, you know, the proximity to pain, um, should be closer to the power, and there's different ways of, of phrasing that. Um, but then also the Black feminist invitation that Black liberation, in fact, holds the key to liberating all of us. Um, and so I wonder if you could just share a little bit of, of that um, from yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting. should almost start from the invitation that Black liberation holds the key to liberating everyone, right? And the question in Black political thought and movement um, has been, well, who's liberation? Right? What, what does liberation look like? So I think one of the, one of the in, important uh, interventions of Black feminist thought and praxis is to say that Black liberation holds the key to liberating everyone, but only if we pay attention to the Black people who have been historically discarded within movement, whose concerns and interests get pushed to the side. And the truth is, it's really only Black feminist thinkers who could have made that intervention, right? Because they were the ones, as you were pointing out, that was actually experiencing this. Otherwise, you could just maintain the, you know, a hegemonic um, cis heterosexual male positionality on what Black liberation is. And so I, I think what and what has traveled from these initial 
um, articulations of intersecting oppressions, triple oppression, et cetera, has been the urgent necessity to make sure that our political lens is trained towards those who are historically marginalized, as well as developing a praxis that allows us to interact with one another in a very different way that allows for space for those who have been uh, historically uh, marginalized within movement that allows for the voice of a, a Black trans woman to, um, to take up as much space, if not more space, than a Black cis heterosexual man, right? And so that's why I like to, I think it's important to switch that Black liberation holds the key to liberating everyone, but then who's liberation? And then, and, and then that, that is how and where that the idea of moving from the margins to the center, as, as Bell Hooks would put it, um, you know, gained so much purchase and became the what I would say irreversible, you know, paradigm. Not perfected, not perfected, or or you know, necessarily agreed to by everyone. But I feel like this intervention at the center of movement and movement practice, not just what movement claims to do, but the approach that movement tries to take to moving towards liberation. We don't, we, I don't, I don't see us going back to a pre-Black feminist intervention that is about centering the historically marginalized as the mechanism by which Black liberation can hold the key to, to liberating everyone. Um, yeah, that's how I, how, how, I, I would, how I would think about that. But, but kind of pivoting a little bit, um, but in a similar vein um, with regards to the importance of the presence and the past and the interplay between the two, right? The Black feminist interventions of the 60s and 70s and how that has uh, played out and become the center of movement now, right? I was struck, but not surprised in your book about how many resonances or reverberations the history you're recounting, because most of it is in the past, has in the present. And, and impressively, how carefully you, you weave all of it together, right? And here I'm thinking about things that people will be familiar with, family separation, uh, the criminalization of radicalism and crit critique, like what we can and can't say about what's happening and has been happening in Gaza, for example, um, or, you know, systems of forced transportation and uh, detention, surveillance technologies. And these are just to name a few of, the, again, the way that you, you, you show us and give us an account of the past that rings true to the present. And in many respects, your work for that reason and other reasons is, is arriving at the right time, really at the right time. So why is it important for you, in a broad sense, to see the United States in both the past and the present as a purveyor of this approach to wielding state power you're calling uh, prison imperialism? I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what the stakes of making that association are. Yeah, yeah I mean, some of it comes from um, this genealogy that, that we're talking about. So. You know, you have that beautiful line in your book, which is the flip side of um, what we were, what you were saying, which is, yeah, also white supremacy is killing everybody, just you more slowly, motherfucker, <laughs> the uh, Fred Moten uh, line. But, you know, that, so so one one approach um, to, is through this 
if you really pay attention to people who internationalize the struggle, they're all peace activists. They're all anti-imperialists. And so, you know, Claudia Jones has this line that, that the book opens with that, you know, imperialism leads to racism, leads to fascism. They're all grappling with kind of militarized violence on a global scale. Um, and because Black Studies um, always has had a transnational framework, you know, attending to the lives of Black people all over the world, and because each of these activists have come up against the limits of, you know, regular politics as usual or law. So they've, you know, realized how law is a source of violence and not a source of redress. They realized the limits of um, domestic politics. And so they had to reach beyond that to find an anti-colonial analysis, decolonial analysis. Um, and so, so part of it um, is, you know, to show uh, this history of, of prison imperialism, um, which is, you know, a way of naming both prison expansion and the circulation of those techniques of uh, social control um, of kind of racially targeted, uh, you know, one way of thinking about it is, is the outsized use of racial violence um, in, in consolidating state power and, and, and both, both and an empire building. So, you know, you see that um, in, you see those, those overlaps. So one of the things that prison imperialism names um, is the, the overlaps in the assumptions and the core policies of uh, foreign policy and criminology or, or uh, penology or prison policy. Um, and, and those core assumptions about preemption, deterrence, containment, incapacitation, retribution, there's like all of this overlap, the same kind of set of, of experts and white policymakers and, um, you know, slave owning in the 19th century and then, you know, um, global war profiting in later centuries. I mean, those, that core set of assumptions is so baked in you know, across the centuries. And it's not to like flatten out change over time. Although, you know, I always have this argument with historians are like, isn't your work presentist? And they, you know, they mean that's activist because you're drawing these lessons from the past to speak to the present. And this is, you know, one of the major differences um, in in approach. And and my answer in grad school, and I, I think I still stand by this, is like, like, no, you're the most, you're the most activist person in the room because you are actively maintaining the status quo. Like if you're writing shit that's just about the pastness of the past or like the niceness of a chair in the 1700s or whatever, like your ass is actively maintaining the status quo. That is just about, that's just, that's activist, that's presentist. It's just like, but if you feel the weight of inequality and if the present, the like, the horrible inequalities of the present are grinding on you and people you love and everything else, then the, then there's a moral imperative to understand the past and look at the past, not as a kind of antiquarian curiosity for the pastness of the past, um, but in fact, to understand the root causes of the crises of, of our time. And also to show, and also to show how these crises were 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 not inevitable. You know, they were manufactured, they were made, and that also gives space to understand that they too can be changed. Yeah. Yeah, a set of contingent policy choices. Yeah, and there's so many ways to trace that. Um, so I guess that's, you know, to get at your question about the stakes and, and we can, um, you know, uh, there are different different ways to think about it, but the stakes are movement building. The stakes are 
a global abolition movement, right? Um, because, and, and the stakes are thinking about both undoing harm and repairing it in really big, broad, capacious ways. You know, like you can undo specific things once you can draw a through line and, and name something like, you know, prison slavery has been the longest lasting and farthest reaching piece of federal prison policy that that has both, you know, if you don't, this is Angela Davis and how prisons are, you know, our prisons, obviously, she says, you don't want to live in a world governed by racism. And this is demonstrably racist. You know, prison prisons is a similar thing, which is like, if you don't live in a world governed by colonialism, and this is, and you could show that this is demonstrably colonial, these logics, right? And here's where they went, and here's how they pioneered them over here and brought them back to, um, you know, that it helps you, um, you know, disavow and also repair and also, you know, do um, the work of, of that, you know, it raises a moral obligation, essentially. Um, but, but yeah, um, so I, you know the stakes um, um, are partially to end violent practices, um, and so there are things like you can end prison slavery. You know, once you've drawn that through line from the convict clause, you know, exporting um, slavery into military servitude as punishment for crime to places like Panama and the Philippines and all over. Um, you know, there's a movement to end prison slavery and there, you know, the National Network for Ending Prison Slavery says, you know, no slavery, no exceptions. And they have abolished it in several states. It didn't get enough votes in California and Louisiana last year. Um, but there are people like Jalil Muntakim, who's in the book, you know, who did 50 years as a political prisoner. And one of the things he's campaigning for in New York is to end prison slavery. Um, and, and similarly, you can end the 1033 program and all these things that youth-led black social movements in the last 10 years have have shown us um need to be uh, abolished but then the flip side of that right is not just staying there and this is what you know your work and and so many people's work um this is the kind of exciting world build building aspect um of all of this is you know abolition as world making so this is, you know, I think depending on what, what audiences you're speaking to and, and whatnot, you know, some people wrongly associate it with just, you know, defunding the police or, or ending something or, or whatever. Um, but as all of people, all of the activists in the movement um, have known now and in the past, this is about creating an alternate world. And so, you know, I'll, I'll put the stakes question um, back back to you and, and ask if you can... Um, Take us through a little bit the way that you break down abolition as world making into its constitutive elements, you know, the way that black joy eminence emanates from everyday youth, feminist and queer practices, how care can be profoundly anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-sexist, um, in all the most literary ways. You know, this is the, the group that I worked with, Alternate Roots, they talk about the need to abolish all forms of oppression everywhere which pretty much succinctly sums up the the call to uh but then the question is is that everyone's question always is what what then what next um and that you know is, is about building um this black future so so just uh take us through a few of the things that people will find in here the the practices and the um, the highlights that yeah yeah no i mean i think it's a it's, it's important to recognize that um abolition is a political aspiration that has an open-ended end, um, but that can be practiced in the present, right? 
as you know a pathway towards that open-ended end right um and that begins with kind of what we were talking about before which is just you know an observation of the world destroying painful structures that do violence and harm on on all kinds of registers both in the u.s and abroad um perpetrated by the u.s in in in, in large part part or at least you know supported by the, by the u.s so that begins with to begin with that recognition and with that recognition, you come to, or you might arrive at the conclusion that so nothing that presently looks like what we have, the structures that we live under, is going to provide, or was meant to provide, the sort of uh, life worlds that we would prefer to live when we give ourselves the opportunity to ask what we prefer, rather than just accepting what we have. And so I think in movement from 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 my observation, when people have heard, you know, about black joy and the prevalence of care uh, on uh, in all different different kinds of ways, um, especially in the aftermath of the COVID nineteen pandemic, but those signal real life abolitionist ways of living, as uh, Eric A. Stanley called, would call it. Right, um, joy is not just a response to pain, but it's also a prefiguration of what what can come if we pursue pr pursue um, an abolitionist way of living towards unmaking and remaking the world. And so, these micro levels of 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 of, of world making through the lens of abolition are central to to getting us and pushing us forward. Also, because they signal the things that we need to shift within ourselves. Care is as much about that as, as, it, as, as it's about anything else. Care is about recognizing that we that our violent institutions will not be a recourse to liberation and that we wear the scars of our violent institutions, social relations, and, you know, a, a heteropatriarchy, right? Even if we even if we espouse a different view, we, we wear that, we perform that. And so one of the things that's been beautiful about movement and 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 other other radical ways of of thinking being and doing is precisely the de desire to not just abolish what's out there but abolish abolish what's inside through practice right and lots of failure and experimentation of course right but care is about the aspiration to be better the aspiration to treat each other differently the aspiration to think collectively and socially rather than individually, the uh, aspirations to recognize the joy in someone could someone else could be a light for you, right? Um, and so I think those are how you you get to a version of care that's anti-capitalist, that's anti-racist, that's anti-sexist in 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 truly liberatory ways. Beautiful. So I know we. Um want to close by just reading a couple an excerpt from each of our uh, from your coda um, and from my epilogue and um, before we we do that I just want to remind folks if you've thought of questions um, to put them in the chat because Peter's gonna jump back in and, and share some of those um, and I think we'll probably have you know at least 15 minutes for for Q&A and audience questions and we're excited uh, to hear from you all um, so do you wanna, you haven't tried, should I do the history and then you do the future or shall we? Sure, let's do that. Uh, all right, so um, this is a piece from the epilogue um, 
that actually, you know, I haven't read, I mean, Chris, Chris uh, suggested, um, we, you know, I've been reading different, different bits and pieces and it's, it's really fun um, to uh, have this conversation and also just, just to, um, you know, have someone that reads and engages your work so deeply and then suggests passages, passages to read because you're also doing this um, crazy thing, which is how to share, how to share a book, how to talk about books. <laughs> um, so this is from the epilogue. It's two paragraphs at the end of 197 um, that kind of overlap with um, Chris's book, um, but don't tell the story nearly as well as his book does. Amid the worldwide Black Lives Matter movement or Black Lives Matter uprisings of some 26 million people in the United States alone, the United Nations issued a statement condemning systemic racism in the United States in 2020. What this meant for those who have died and are dying and for those whose lives are daily threatened by the unjust imprisonment during the ongoing pandemic remains to be seen. The uprisings are now considered the largest and broadest protest movement in U.S. history. They build on years of organizing for Black lives and have inspired solidarity protests around the world. Demands to free longtime political prisoners and to release all people from dangerous and unnecessary confinement in jails and prisons intensified as the COVID-19 virus was disproportionately killing people in prison. As new freedom dreams, policy proposals, and future-making practices take shape, many are looking to the Black and Indigenous traditions of anti-racist and anti-colonial organizing and movement building for inspiration and lessons learned. Across the long history of the struggle against state violence, activists in the U.S. anti-prison movement have pushed for an international theory of change rooted in a decolonial analysis of racial violence and an expanded framework of human rights. Perhaps the global prison abolition movement will become the new human rights paradigm as we move from the last utopia to the next. Yeah. Yeah, I love that passage, and not just because it resonates with 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 uh, with what I've been doing and what I've been observing, and is a very clear distillation of where our work overlaps. Um, but that the the last utopia to the next, right? The idea that abolition, whether you're going to call it prison abolition or just abolition, whatever it might be, might be the you know container for for human rights, um, the vehicle for um, the radical transformations that we all uh, want to see. And so I think that's a, a powerful a distillation of things. Um, and, you know, I will, will just say before I read the, the coda in, in, or a couple of paragraphs in the coda in mine uh, is, is to, you know, just repeat that it's been a pleasure to engage your work. It's a very important intervention. Um, it forces... And we didn't get a chance to talk to, to talk about this, but it forces the internationalist lens in very important ways. We were we were gonna maybe we can get into this in the in the Q and A's about the degrees to which this is we can call this a new age of internationalism or 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 what that looks like or how it came about. But your book certainly is a work that is hearkening to that necessity, the vibrancy and vitality of its past, and the possibilities that it might engender for the future. So thank, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs in the coda, 
And I'll just start by saying that you know, it makes references to some uh, quotes that are that preceded, but you won't you won't need it to uh, to actually understand. Um, Césaire's uh, searing critique in the opening lines of Discourse on Colonialism were written over 70 years ago, but the spirit of its condemnation remains true to this day, with perhaps one small amendment. Our decadent and stricken civilization is not dying. It's already dead. There's nothing left to redeem or revive, nothing for us to mourn. Without hesitation and absent remorse, we must abandon our dreams and say farewell to our old beliefs and former friendships. The burial is long overdue. Let's hurry to our shovels. To believe otherwise, to remain impervious to social decline, the farce of so-called democracy, the deprivation fostered by widening inequalities, the creep of fascism, the coming climate catastrophe already here is the height of self-deception and a betrayal of the first order. Look around. Violence traces the capitalist world system in ways both visible and sometimes hard to see. It always has. Social contradictions abound and spread, producing a fog that obscures our collective agency and interdependence when not properly addressed. They always will, if we let it. The choice is ours to make. Peter, yeah, jump back in. I think we have at least 15 minutes for yeah, chatting. And questions been yeah, have begun to come through. Anya asks, how can we learn from the mistakes of history? How can we make a constructive impact on dismantling systems of oppression and imprisonment that continue to exist? Yeah, um, I can start. This is a great Great question. And I'll just say that Anya is my sister who inspired um, a lot of my approach to activism. Um, I also see my aunt here. You'll see in the um, acknowledgments, uh, these two women were bold, fierce activists in their own right um, in all kinds of justice movements. And so um, I don't know if she's trying to softball me or, or what, but. Um, you know, we have to learn from from history, um, and you know the the broader um, um, point for justice movements. I mean, this is in both both of our work. Is there are things that um, we can end by studying root causes. There are things that um, we can you know seek to say like this is no longer you know prison slavery is not something that um, this country should. Uh, be about should be you know they should be you know, exporting u.s style structural racism around the world is not something um that should be happening anymore is actually making us less safe um, and all these these other things um and then there's this hard work of, of movement building that um, chris chris lifts up and, and so many people lift up that comes from this kind of generations of of struggle um and that that we if we pay attention to um we can really learn a lot from. Yeah, I would I would just add to, to that, you know, another way of learning from the past is paying attention to the past, as you do in, in your book, and uh, mine's more about the present, but it does some retro, uh, you know, retrospective looking backwards. Um, and a part of that is the lessons that come directly from people who have mounted these types of struggles, right? To, to not, as 
uh, Fanon would instruct, dismiss what we might perceive to be their past failures or inadequacies, but to really appreciate materially how certain conditions of possibility, certain um, ideas arise at certain moments because of those conditions of possibility and not in others, right? Um, So learning from mistakes, from successes, uh, I think is central to and this is that intergenerational work we were kind of talking about before, is central to being able to not just recognize that we can end things, but how to do so, right? Um, and how not to do so, too. Uh, Roz has a comment and some questions. To carry Anya's question forward further, I think I've spoken to both of you about how the dynamics of movements naturally evolve. Certain ways of moving people are effective in a particular moment and not in the next. What are the living dynamics or newest innovations of moving people in the now? For example, social media was key amongst young people led by Black feminists in recent years for moving masses. Is it still? What is key for communication today? And it goes on. Yeah, well, well, I I think uh, social media still is an important place for um, galvanizing energy and getting people to, you know, concrete locations through that energy. Um, One of the things that I think that is different, that might be different now as we move perhaps into a different conjuncture to post-Black Lives Matter world, I'm not sure, it's up in the air, um, is definitely the response to organizational institutional structures that align with nonprofits. Um, I think that some of the issues that have arisen behind the scenes after social media when actually trying to build organizations is how those organizations align and how that alignment impacts the mission that was at the root of the organization to begin with, the radicality of its politics, again, how people treat each other within those contexts. So one that that to me is definitely one thing that we might see that, uh, that to be a definitive shift away from what we've been seeing. And again, the galvanizing on social media is going to continue to happen. That's still an important space for that. But once you get into actual organizing and actual organizi- organizing structures, I think people are going to look long and hard at you know, how those organizations align and to whom they become beholden to. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before this started. I'm waiting for Chris's next book about some of these digital, both organizing and dangers. Um, you know, the the rise, not just of AI, but of e-carceration, you know, the Center for Media Justice right there in the Bay Area um, has done some really, really good work on this. James Kilgore and, and Ruthie Gilmore um, I've talked a lot about this, but, you know, that that kind of like carceral, the the way that that uh, the carceral state expands in the name of reform. So there's a piece in the book that talks about e-carceration being prison imperialism's next frontier that people think, you know, ankle monitors or something like that, like a kinder, fuzzier cage is OK. And then it just gets more and more people get brought into that system in the name of reform and it does a di- harm on even larger scales. And so I think, you know, thinking about these technologies, um, both in terms of their powers for connecting connection and, and 
um, you know, communication and, and mobilizing, like like Chris was saying, and also their dangers, both for expanding the carceral state, um, for destroying civil liberties and freedom of speech and all these other things. And, you know, the, the kinds of things that, um, you know, Chris was mentioning too, like the, you know, Twitter effect of like more followers, bigger is better, you know, more contentious is, is going to get you more, you know, and then the groundedness of struggles over placemaking, over concrete social and economic entitlements, um, remembering that to, to do the actual stuff in real life, you know, that, that Chris writes about in his book, the, the ratchet realm, all these spaces that are very real physical um, spaces where people build trust um, in ways that, you know, just haven't been replicated online. Um, you know, so anyway, we're, we're waiting for Chris's next book on this. Nate uh, has a question for you, Benjamin. I, I wanted to ask if you've reflected on the absence of internal colonial analysis in the past few decades within the academy, and if in your intervention you're calling for a reclamation of such an analysis, do you think the absence of this analysis has performed a counterinsurgent function similar to the transition you point out in the book? Mm, yeah. You know, I think there are ways that, that academic conversations um, ebb and, and flow and, and probably within academic circles, we think they're much more influential and important than they actually are in the world. And so I think in, in movement circles and in, and in college campuses, you know, um, um there's there's that idea has always been interesting to people because of the way that it names certain logics um and then as academics tend to do they get all busy about definitions and start fighting with each other about what things mean and blah 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 and kind of ruin it for everybody so um you know i think there's, uh no but but really seriously um you know uh, asada shakur kind of talks about this um, in in the way that an analysis of internal colonialism helped them build solidarity with Puerto Rican nationalists and indigenous movements, but then also, and then that which led to a kind of black nationalism, which as Chris was pointing out in its masculinist version, um, she says you can't have nationalism without internationalism um, because of the way that any kind of national so so internal colonialism did really interesting and important work in the world i think it's it's coming back as a way of naming these connections between um systems of social control abroad and at home and then it also circulates in popular discourse in ways that um you know our you know chris hayes an msnbc commentator has a book called the colony and a nation and that says you know there's a, there's a legal system that treats black people one way and white people another way um and you know that's another way of naming a phenomenon that a lot of people have named um and the uh what's another recent one you know thinking about caste um as bill wilkerson has a way of thinking about um racial control through caste you know i think each of these things are as useful as they um, get people to reckon with um, um, kind of the inequalities and violences of the past in ways that motivate them to do something toward the solutions. And so, um, you know, I don't, um, I think, yeah, I think they're, you know, to the, to the point about a counterinsurgent function, like, yeah, um, counter, like knowledge is part of that. Um, so, but counterinsurgency is really um, 
invested in using outsized violence to intimidate uh, and control broader swaths of, of the population. So there's this famous quote in, you know, there's an FBI agent writes to J. Edgar Hoover. He's like, black youth and moderates maybe must be made to realize that if they succumb to revolutionary teaching, they'll be dead revolutionaries. And so this target, this counterinsurgency strategy of target use of outsized violence to traumatize broader swaths um, of the, the population um, is something that was pioneered in war making um, and has, has come back. Um, I think there's a similar, you know, probably like silencing as things go in and out of, of fashion, but I'd be careful, um, you know, to, to equate that with, uh, you know, the targeted killing of, of uh, revolutionary leaders. Christopher, did you have a comment or? Oh, well, no, I mean, I guess it, it just to, to piggyback off of that and maybe move in a slightly different direction with that. I mean, I, I do think there is discursive counterinsurgency, not to equate, not to um, equate it with the same types of counter uh, insurgency tactics that you were just referencing. Um, you know, not to collapse them on each other, but the, the and and this to kind of go back to what Ross was. One of the things that Roz was asking about, and I definitely do think that, you know, social media and hashtags as phenomena um, are very easily captured and made something else in a way that I might call counterinsurgency, right? I might, and you know, and maybe it's just a, maybe it's just a, you know, a word choice thing, but some of it seems quite. In, intentional uh or the way corporations can can take the language of black lives matter or you could you know paint it on a on a street or whatever and then it's like okay look at look at everything that we're doing or the people in congress can wear can't they call you know like the, those are, those are that's less discursive and more aesthetic but if we think about those things as it's useful to me to imagine them as tools within a larger set of, of counterinsurgent tactics, these being particularly uh, uh, unique in their ability to spread precisely because of social media's role in initially spreading the media, um, the, the movement. So that, that's what I'd add to, to this. Yeah. I have a question actually for the both of you. Where do you stand in relation to the work of Franz Fanon at this particular moment? Um, because you mentioned Amy Césaire earlier, and of course that brought my thinking to, to Franz Fanon. And uh, what is of use to you in his work right now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think we both have epigraphs, or you know, he's quote heavily quoted um, part of of the black black radical tradition because, like Amy Césaire, he writes from an anti-colonial critique, decolonial critique. Um, one of the things, um, you know, in reading Chris's book, and he talks about coming of age during the Arab, what was called the Arab Spring, that, that series of uprisings along with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, was, you know, uh, they were reading Fanon. You know, people were like, oh, this is a revolution. They should be reading these kind of like Western texts about how to create a nation state that has liberal rule of law. And like, no, they're reading about how to decolonize uh, like how to deal with the continued effects of neocolonialism. And so, um, you know, one of the ways that, that I reckon with 
Sanan's work in this moment. And this is also, you know, to Nate's question is, is through the continued relevance of a decolonial framework for understanding solutions to um, these violent histories um, and, and understanding that that's grounded in struggles over placemaking that we've seen, you know, in various protest movements and direct action, but also has this psychological dimension, um, you know, that he writes about really clearly. And so holding both um, is, is really important because I think there have been debates in the past that, you know, some things should or do take precedent over others. And I think shifting from the interpersonal to the structural and, and being able to hold both is something that the black radical tradition really does well. It was a blind spot for white Marxists for a long time. Um, you know, and so the black radical tradition came along and said like, no, racism has a motive force in history that needs to be contended with. And I think that's one of the things that this black stream of anti-colonial thinking and decolonial thinking really helps us work through. Yeah, uh, Anand has, a, as was mentioned, has a has a, a central place in the thinking and theoretical lens of the book. Uh, but to to say what might be particularly useful about Fanon's work, um, particularly uh, the rest of the Earth, I would say, is how materially grounded it is, um, and how it's largely about lessons right the, the book teaches us from the from the material ground that that he 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 offers but it teaches us about you know how to organize across classes things not to do across classes um it doesn't shy away from what we might implicitly know is necessary but try to avoid which is that transformation is going to be violent on all kinds of levels and we should stop pretending like it's not or that we can't afford it, right? Or that it's not going to be disproportionately, you know, um, leveled towards us and we need to understand that and be prepared for that. So I think all of those lessons were, were always useful um, uh, since Fanon wrote, uh, or since he was alive, but I think can be particularly useful now in for the reasons that I just cited and then can you know completely be ways through which one can understand various situations geopolitically. Wow. Well we find ourselves running out of time and I'm really ever grateful to the two of you. Have you any final parting comments before we wrap? I hear my baby and she's calling me to put her to sleep. The only and, final, the final comment that I'll make is 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 that you know having had many conversations around around the book, this was one of the first times to to have one in conversation, right, back and forth um, about more than just my book and thinking, and and that was a lot of fun. So I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity that um, City Lights has provided for that to happen, and for Ben to to Ben for uh, writing a great book that is very much in conversation with mine. And grateful to all of you for sharing virtual space with us. And I know this will be the first of many conversations. Well, thank you both for gracing our halls. I mean, that was a very compelling, very enlightening 
talk, so many great references. And I love the way that both your books, you know, complement each other in ever so many ways. So Benjamin Weather, congratulations on this very important, wonderful new book. Thank you. Christopher Paul Harris, likewise, congratulations on the success of your new book. And again, such a pleasure and an honor. (laughs) There they are. are. (laughs) Thanks to all of you in the audience. As always, you help complete the circle. Tonight's program has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So, so long, everyone. Please take care. Be well. We hope to see you all again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.